Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 130, A Conversation with Dr. Laura Lambert. Dr. Lambert was diagnosed with stage three rectal cancer shortly after her 40th birthday. And on today's episode, she talks about her treatment, which included radiation, surgery, ileostomy placement and reversal, and six months of chemotherapy. And in that mix, she also got married. She completed chemotherapy in April of 2020, right as the COVID-19 pandemic was getting started. We talk a lot about what her life has looked like in those last three years and what survivorship looks like for colorectal cancer, including a lot of talk on poop, which is often a taboo topic, but we really must break the stigma and have more conversations around it. We also talk about sexual health, mental health, and so much more. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and I thought it was really important to share this conversation, and I want to share, before we get into it, I want to share a few key statistics. Excluding skin cancers, colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer diagnosed in both men and women in the United States, and the American Cancer Society estimates that for 2023, there will be 106 1,970 new cases of colon cancer and 46,050 new cases of rectal cancer. The lifetime risk of developing colorectal cancer is about one in 23 for men and one in 26 for women. Of course, each person's risk may be higher or lower than that, depending on risk factors for colorectal cancer. On this episode, we also talk about screening the newest guidelines to lower the screening age to 45 from 50 for average risk people. And we go into some of the risk factors for colorectal cancer. This is an important episode, and I hope you take the time to listen and to educate yourself. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Dr. Laura Lambert to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude Podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Lara, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Can you start by telling us a little bit about who you are and your story? Sure. Um, I am um, Laura Lambert. I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and I am a internal medicine pulmonary critical care physician. And I work at our VA hospital. I love working there. It's it's very fulfilling working with the veterans. Um, I am actually a patient as well. So uh, when I was 37, I started having symptoms um, of blood in my stool. It was not very frequent. It, uh, I never had any pain. I never had any weight loss. I never had any um, anemia. And um, like any, you know, physician, like, why would I have cancer? I thought maybe I had IBS, I was stressed out. And I um, put off having a colonoscopy for two and a half years. 
uh, I had really convinced myself that I had, you know, something that was not life-threatening just because I felt so well. And I ended up uh, scheduling a colonoscopy right after my 40th birthday. Um, I had a friend do the colonoscopy. And uh, when I woke up, she said that I had a 10 centimeter tumor in my rectum. And um, my husband, who was my fiance at the time, fainted when he heard that. So everyone was rushing to take care of him. And I was there, you know, very overwhelmed. Um, he's fine and he's been a trooper throughout everything else, but that was kind of our little, you know, laughable moment at that time. I ended up having an MRI uh, um, a couple hours later and I was diagnosed with stage 3C um, rectal cancer. And so, you know, I'm just really very thankful that you and I can sit down and talk. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And um, colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of death in men and women. And so it's just something that is now a very um, big passion of mine to bring awareness to. And thank you for sharing that. You know, I think we all, I mean, they do say doctors make the worst patients and that is absolutely correct. But, you know, it's natural to kind of attribute, right? I mean, our, we don't want to just jump to cancer. We don't want to jump to the worst case scenario. So it's natural to think of things like, oh, I'm training with my bowel movement or I'm stressed or it's irritable bowel syndrome. What ultimately made you decide to go and get that colonoscopy? I think that ultimately I knew that something was wrong and that I couldn't keep on explaining it, you know, by just stress. Um, but, you know, I wasn't really aware that colorectal cancer was on the rise in young people. I always considered it an old man disease. So even though I knew something was, you know, not right, I never, ever imagined that it was going to be cancer. I mean, and it, it is so much on the rise that they actually recently, uh, I forget what year it was, but very recently changed the screening recommendations from 50 to 45. And I think there's been such a push about educating the public about this exact thing, right, that you don't need to have symptoms, you should be getting your screening colonoscopy, even in the absence of symptoms or a family history. And if you do have symptoms, you know, definitely getting them checked out. Right. And I, I think that there's actually going to be a push for the age to be even lower, just because of the amount of colorectal cancer they're finding in people under 45. Um, and they're, they're saying that, you know, over the last few decades that the rate of colorectal cancer is increasing in people under 45. And so it's becoming a very prominent problem. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, 45 will change to 40, just kind of like breast cancer screenings. The benefit of what you get with a colonoscopy or other colon cancer screening outweighs, you know, waiting to do it. But I think it raises the question of, you know, I have a friend who's a gastroenterologist and she was talking about the ability for people to get their screening in, right? Because there are more people who need to get screening, but there aren't more doctors available to do the screening. Right. And that, you know, that's when you really hope that people use other, you know, alternatives like fit thing and things like that instead of, you know, just colonoscopies, you know, yeah. them. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think those tests are, you know, all of the screening tests have pluses and minuses, but I always tell people if, especially people who say, I really, I'm afraid of a colonoscopy, I can't get time off work, whatever it is, you know, to do those other tests, um, you know, colonoscopy is still the gold standard, but there are other stool-based and imaging tests that are 
great and a really good a bit alternative if you're not able or unwilling or cannot get a colonoscopy for whatever reason. Exactly. Exactly. I think one of the hardest things for me was to actually just get it scheduled and have two days off where, you know, I would do the prep on the first day and then the colonoscopy on the second day. And, you know, just with my, with my work schedule, it got pushed out, you know, just a couple of months later as well when, after I decided to, you know, schedule it. So walk us through what happened after that diagnosis. Um, immediately, I told my uh, fiance that he didn't have to stay with me. You know, that if, you know, if this was too much for him, he hadn't signed up for it and that, you know, we could go our separate ways. And he said, no, I was, you know, being irrational and that he was going to stick with me. So I appreciate that. Um, I um, got all of my treatment at the Medical University of South Carolina, where I actually did med school residency and fellowship. So it was definitely different being on the other side of things. I started uh, with six weeks of radiation. So um, the standard of care for colorectal cancer is a little bit different now. And it's changed over the past couple of years where before they would do radiation and then surgery and then chemotherapy, um, at least for me for being stage three. And now they've changed that uh, to have chemotherapy all up front and then radiation and then surgery. So I ended up doing uh, radiation first and then I got married um, and to you know, a very intimate ceremony with my husband. Um, and then I had surgery I had a ileostomy placed for, you know, better healing. Um, and then I had an ileostomy reversal and then I had six months of chemo. And um, my last chemotherapy was April 1st of 2020. So right before the pandemic hit, um, I had one of my um, mentors come and sit with me in my last chemotherapy. Uh, and he was like, there's this, you know, COVID is, you know, in Italy. I don't know if it's going to be a big thing. And I, it made me a little worried just because of me being immunosuppressed. Um, and then, you know, obviously now here we are three years later and it's, you know, still a thing. Um, it's funny because we're talking about this and this is right at that three-year mark when COVID was, you know, coming mm -hmm. to the States. And at this time, like three years ago, I got like an, you know, alert on my phone that I was, I was in San Diego three years ago for a comp, for a medical conference. And I remember when I left, people were like, you shouldn't go. What if? And I was like, it's fine. It's, you know, and, and in California, no one was masked. I mean, there was just like no sense of urgency whatsoever. And then I came back and like three days later, it all exploded. Yeah. Those are wild times, right? Yeah. I feel like those are the things that, you know, you'll we'll always remember, right? Where were you when? Mm -hmm. Now, during treatment, um, I want to talk about two things. So one, can you kind of, I think, break down a little bit about what having an ileostomy is like, care for it, what it felt like, right, as a woman, and, and obviously that changes your body image a lot, because I think there's such a fear and a stigma of ostomies with, with good reason, but you know, it exists. Right. I, uh, I cried full disclosure. I totally cried when um, I was told that I was going to have to have that. I think that there, there is such a stigma. There's a stigma around colorectal cancer in the first place, but then there's also a stigma of having this, what people call your poop bag, your ileostomy that's on the outside where you are having your excrements go into it and, and people um, just have such a negative, you know, thinking towards it. And then I know that I did it uh, being a woman, you, you know, 
you don't feel good about yourself or you you wonder, you know, how people are going to perceive you. I was very fortunate. I'm not sure that I'm going to be the best to answer this. I had my ileostomy for 10 days. My uh, surgeon, and it's not really standard practice, but my surgeon believes in early reversals to potentially have less um, issues with bowel movements in the future once they, you know, have you reconnected. Um, but I just remember I did everything wrong with my ileostomy. They gave me very little teaching. They're like, well, you're a doctor, so you probably understand how to, you know, do the paste and put the bag on and make sure that it sticks and change it and empty it. And I had no idea. And it was um, eye opening. And I had a neighbor who was a wound care nurse, and she was a lifesaver just because I, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, so this life-saving surgery that I had um, really was, it was eye-opening to, to see how, you know, people, people live with it. And, you know, it is what it is. It, I was very thankful my surgeon saved my life uh, and ileostomy was challenging, but ultimately, you know, you have to do what you have to do. You know, I think that's just so important to talk about because, you know, and I think it's so interesting that they assume that you kind of knew how to handle it, despite the fact that you, you're you not a GI doctor and you really have no, like if someone said to me, you know how to do it, I'd be like, I've, I have no idea how to manage an ostomy. Right. And, and I did it. And the, the diets that you can and can't eat while you have the ileostomy, um, the different types of bags. I mean, it just it just goes on and on. So I, I have a, you know, a new appreciation for people that you know have one permanently, and then for you know people that are the wound care nurses and the GI doctors and nurses that help out with that, it's it's a lot. And um, question for you: Did you work during treatment? So I did. My um, coworkers and bosses were incredibly supportive. Um, they said that I could work as much or as little as I wanted to. And so the way that my chemotherapy um, ended up working out was that I would get an infusion and then be on oral chemo for two weeks. And so I would take about a week off and then I would work part time for the other two weeks and then just kind of continue that for my eight cycles of chemo. And if I didn't feel well one day, you know, they said just, you know, go home. And it was, um, you know, again, they were very supportive. I loved being at work because it gave me something else to focus on instead of the, the, what I considered like the doom of having cancer. Um, it, you know, gave me the ability to focus on, you know, patients and providing care for them. So that was, you know, really a, a good driver for me. Were you open? I mean, were you, you know, while working, were you open with patients about your diagnosis? And I'm, I'm always curious about that dynamic. So I wasn't at the time, um, I, I didn't feel like I wanted any sympathy. I am, you know, probably to a fault, very open with patients. Now I feel like being a patient myself has made me a better doctor just because I have been on the other end where they are, you know, I've gotten the bad news, I've gotten the complications and, um, it, it just makes me be able to like appreciate what they're going through and being able to, you know, listen to what they say. So I'm very open now. And I have seen, you know, a couple people 
regularly that have colorectal cancer. I've seen some young people that have it. And so it's like, here's my phone number. You know, I'd, I'd love to chat with you, you know, keep me updated on things. And so almost to a fault, um, you know, but I, I'm an open book with my patients. So. Any lessons that now, you know, did you change your doctoring style or your way of communicating with patients after being a patient yourself? I think one of the main things is that people really know their bodies and should listen to them. Um, And uh, another thing that I tell my patients is it's better to be safe than sorry. So even if they feel like they're coming, you know, for an appointment and it's not that big of a deal, it's probably better not to put off things. And, you know, kind of like I did, I waited so long because I didn't think that my rectal bleeding was a big deal. And it is, I mean, no one should have blood in their stool. It's just mm-hmm. a hard stop. If that happens, there's something going on. I mean, it might not be cancer. It might be hemorrhoids. It might be an anal fissure. Um but it's something that needs to be checked out. So I always say it's better to be safe than sorry now. You know, and to add to that, I think a lot of times people don't go for tests because of what you alluded to is the fear, right? So sometimes you can't take time off work. Sometimes you really don't think it's anything, um, but sometimes people are afraid. And I see this in my world as a breast oncologist, where sometimes people have a breast mass that they feel and they, they're nervous and they're scared about what it could be. And so they don't they don't go or they delay their mammogram. And I think obviously the same thing happens in colon cancer. Um, And I think it's important to talk about the fact that not all bleeding and not all abnormalities are cancer. And there are, like you said, a number of non-cancerous things, like there's so many things that it can be that it's not, we're not always going to jump to cancer. Right. And what about survivorship? Meaning finish treatment or finish the active treatment part you're newly married. What does life look like kind of in that moment? I think I had different um, ideas of how life would look like. And then the pandemic happened. So obviously, I think everyone's been living in this pandemic driven world where there's, you know, not a lot of traveling and uh, obviously like being very busy in hospitals, being a physician. Um, I, I think at least as part of being done with treatment, you always worry about the next scan and what's going to happen next. And you, and especially for me being a stage three patient, um, there's always a fear of recurrence. And so for the first couple of years, you get frequent scans and um, frequent blood work. And so that's always, you know, you live from like moment to moment with the scans. You have a little bit of respite in between where, you know, get to see my husband and dogs and all of that stuff. But um, I think for like the first year after finishing treatment, it was more like, let's get through the hurdles of, you know, scans and labs and just making sure that you stay, you know, everything clear. I think now it's, it'll be three years. I have scans in, in a week and a half. And so it'll be three years um, since I've finished treatment. And you think less about, um, about what you've been through. And for me, at least, I want to just do more. I want to be able to be an advocate. I want to be able to save people's lives. I want to tell my story and have people, um, you know, 
go get a test, whether it's a colonoscopy or a mammogram or a skin check, or even just going to visit the doctor and finding out they have high blood pressure. Like I, I want to, you know, make a difference now because, you know, I'm here for a reason. You know, I have, I have a lot of friends that I've lost over the past couple of years, you know, it's, um, so it's definitely a blessing to be here and I want to take advantage of that. And thank you for being here and, and sharing your story because the more we can talk about it and the more we can talk about, especially young adults with colon cancer, that's, that really hopefully will inspire someone else to go get a, you know, to schedule their colonoscopy, to go to the doctor, to get their symptoms evaluated. Does the scanxiety ever get easier? You know, that now three years into it, does that, those feelings, are they less or are they just as nerve wracking each time? I don't think they ever really go away completely. I do think that the scans maybe get a little bit easier the further you go out, maybe because the scans aren't as frequent. Um, I think that I, I know that I've seen your uh, Instagram posts with the cancer patients um, who is, who does a lot of like laughable memes and things mm -hmm. like that. And so there's a lot of talk about skin anxiety um, and, you know, the, the saying, you can't be anxious if you're sedated with Ativan. I mean, that's definitely. <laughs> that definitely will help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I do think it gets easier the further out you get, but it's, it's always there in the back of your mind, unfortunately. And what about, you know, I think as the years go on, do you feel like, obviously you're a different person after cancer, but in terms of your day to day, in terms of things like sexual function and relationships and marriage and like just going through going through the days, would you say that it's like you feel like cancer is more in the backseat, you know, or is it constantly still with you day to day? I think for me, unfortunately, it's with me more day to day just because of you know, my cancer was rectal cancer. And so the amount of colon and rectum that I lost has, you know, made bowel movements complicated. So we're going to talk about poop, you know, because yeah. sometimes it's so taboo and people just don't like to talk about it, but it's something that my life revolves around the bathroom, unfortunately, um, working sometimes a little difficult and I've gotten out of jury duty for, um, you know, from my doctor because, you know, sitting for a long time and then potentially having to go to the bathroom. Um, but my day to day revolves around going to the bathroom just because of the amount of colon and rectum that I lost and lots of medicines. And so while it's not, I don't focus a, as much on having cancer that I had cancer. I do focus a lot on, you know, the leftover stuff, you know, yeah. the, the, the symptoms, the, you know, the problems that are going to be lasting forever. You know, I had pelvic radiation. And so kind of like with ovarian cancer and, you know, all the gynecologic cancers and you know, pelvic radiation, you know, causes people to have menopause and vaginal stenosis. And so those are all things that, you know, you have to think about and plan and, you know, go to physical therapy for your pelvic floor, um, all things that I am like a hundred percent, you know, supportive of and, you know, always tell people to do, but as a newlywed, you're like thinking, wow, yeah. I have, you know, I'm, I'm afraid to have sex and mm -hmm. I have to use a dilator and 
um, you know, just things that you never really thought that you would be thinking about. In terms of kind of your day revolving around the bathroom and the bowel movements, um, is it more on constipation side? Is it diarrhea or is it a mix of both? So it's a mixture of both. And so there's a term called um, LARS and it's low anterior resection syndrome. And it's a mixture of um, diarrhea and constipation. It's for people that don't have a rectum anymore, basically. And so the rectum is your storage shed of, you know, it holds all the poop and it allows you to, you know, hold it for a long time, have one bowel movement or two bowel movements a day. And so when you have rectal cancer, most of that is gone. And so you can't hold anything in. And my surgeon will be like, just hold it, just hold it. And it's, it's just not that easy. Like mm -hmm. you have to retrain your descending colon to, you know, functionally work as a rectum almost. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of medicines that you can take in fiber and prebiotics and probiotics. And I think at one point in time, I was using like 16 Imodium pills a day and it's just, <laughs> but you, at the longer it goes on, the more of a rhythm you get and you can kind of understand, you know, if I eat this, then it'll make me go to the bathroom. So I will try to avoid this or, you know, that sort of thing. But it's um, a lot of trial and error at first. Um, a lot of wearing depends for the first couple of months. And again, you know, everyone doesn't like to talk about the bathroom, but my life revolves around it. So yeah. gotten very comfortable talking about it. And in that, all of that, that you're navigating, how did that impact if you're comfortable talking about it, your relationship as a newlywed sexual function, sexual health, because not only is it the bathroom, it's the vaginal stenosis and public floor radiation and, you know, all of that and public floor PT, I think is really a wonderful, wonderful resource, but all of that is also a lot of work to do, right? It's intensive treatment. Right. I, I, my husband is a saint and it has been incredibly patient with me. I, um, you know, you don't feel like yourself when you're going through chemo. So I, and we had just been gotten married. So I kind of, we didn't do very much, unfortunately. And then the very first time I was like, okay, we're going to have sex. The next day he was diagnosed with COVID and <laughs> I was like, are you trying to kill me? Not crazy, but you know, I, you have to make an effort. I think um, when you have gone through all of this and you know, it's, it is work for pelvic floor physical therapy and for the dilators and everything. And then I, I think, unfortunately it's not unfortunate, but you have to work at your sex life too, because it's just not, um, it's just not normal anymore. You know, you have all of these scars, you're a little self-conscious, you've, you know, been through hell and back and um, then, you know, you want to be intimate, but there's so many things and you can't turn off your brain sometimes. And so, you know, you, you have to work on it. Um, it's, it's not as easy as, you know, my friends who've never been through this before and they have sex with their husbands all the time. And I'm like, wow, I wonder what that would be like. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a topic that I think most we don't talk about as much as we should just like poop, right? And these are all things that when the active cancer treatment is done, that these are all the residual that are long lasting and that remain and that really can impact someone's quality of life. 
Right. Yes. And that again, physical therapy is something pelvic floor physical therapy is a lifesaver. So it's definitely something that, you know, I know that all of the um, colorectal surgeons recommend and, you know, it's something that I swear by. Mm -hmm. Switching gears a little bit, um, kind of looking, you know, kind of now looking back um, at these last three years and where you were and how far you've come, if you had to kind of talk to someone newly diagnosed with rectal cancer, right, what advice would you give kind of now looking backwards at the last few years? Um, I would tell them that it is going to be a challenge and that there are days where you don't want to do it anymore, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you will get through it. And, you know, survivorship is a whole other set of challenges. And I don't like to tell them that either, just because, you know, I want to be able to make sure that they're like, okay, I'm going to get to the end of it. But it is true. I mean, you just are so focused on um, getting through all of the treatment, the surgery, the chemo, the radiation, um, and it is doable. It's, it's hard. It's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I had my daughter at 16 and I took her to Duke with me and medical school and everything. And I thought I was like, wow, that is hard done with challenges for my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And then obviously this diagnosis, you know, made me uh, have even more challenges, but that's okay. Um, But to the people that are newly diagnosed, just, you know, it's a wild ride. It's a roller coaster. You know, there are great days and, Mm -hmm. you know, highs and you go through loops and you, you know, go down a hill and your stomach sinks and, you know, hits the floor and, but then the ride ends and it's, you know, you get off and you're like, wow, I just rode that roller coaster and it was amazing. What about your daughter? So she is how old now in her twenties, right? She is 26. What was it like for her, you know, hearing about your diagnosis and kind of navigating that for her. Yeah. Um, I, I had my um, colonoscopy two days before she graduated from college. And I remember thinking that I was going to die and that I wouldn't see her get married or go to grad school or anything like that. Um, And it just really weighed on me because I was mad at myself for letting my symptoms go on for so long. And, you know, being stage three, you have a high risk of recurrence, you know, so you think like if I had just gone a year before, two years before, right when it started, how things would be different. Um, My daughter, again, she had just, she was about to graduate from college. So she's up in Virginia. She ultimately went to grad school. So she's a mental health social worker for the homeless population in Richmond, Virginia. Um, she did not want to be a doctor, which I understand. You know, she sat by yeah. beside me when I was in medical school, so she was like, "No, thank you." I saw the dead bodies in the gross anatomy lab. She doesn't want any part. Um, but you know, she came home when I had chemo, and she hung out with me, and um, she is definitely not happy about having early colonoscopies. Mm-hmm. I think that um, you know, I didn't have anybody in my family have cancer. Um, I have no genetic abnormalities on my cancer screening. Um, So this was 
you know, bad luck for me. Um, the rest of my family has been screened. They're all fine. So I, you know, I'm sure that my daughter is going to be just fine, but she definitely has to be screened early. So um, with the recommendations, if a first degree relative has colorectal cancer, you're supposed to get screened 10 years beforehand. Um, so for me, I was diagnosed at 40. So she gets her first colonoscopy at 30. We're probably going to do it a little bit earlier for her just because I should have been diagnosed at 37. So she's yeah. going to get she's going to get one next year. So she's not too excited about that. It's yeah, I definitely get it's not a fun test, but it, it's life saving. Right. So many tests that we have only allow you to diagnose, you know, not prevent. And colonoscopy is one of the tests where you can find a precancerous polyp. And hopefully that's when you find it if you can. Right. Exactly. I think that they've said that, you know, if if all of the people that have colon cancer, if they had gotten their screening, you know, when they were supposed to, that we could have prevented like 65% of the deaths from colorectal cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so that's definitely something to keep in mind. I mean, it is a preventable disease as long as you do the screening. Yeah. And I think especially if the screening age migrates even lower, right, then that may have, you know, even more ramifications and repercussions in terms of reducing, you know, mortality and improving outcomes. But, you know, it's still, despite the fact that I was looking at these statistics the other day, and it's still about like 20 to 25% of people who are eligible for screening that don't get it. Right. You know, yeah. and I think, um, and I think partly too, is sometimes there's this misconception that if I, I can't get a colonoscopy because I can't get time off work, I'm not going to do anything, you know, like that's it for my screening. Um, and I think that's really worth the discussion with your doctor about other modalities, especially if you can't get the colonoscopy done or can't get an appointment or something like that. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you wanted to share? Um. You know, I think that there um, it's worth mentioning like the risk factors for colorectal cancer, you know, as far as um, being overweight, um, smoking, um, heavy alcohol use, red meat consumption. I mean, those aren't, you know, very I, I think that those are risk factors that can be controlled. So that's something to kind of point out. Um, also like the risk factor of having diabetes, you're more at risk of having colorectal cancer. Um, you know, so those are things that are, you know, we can control them. So it's something to, that, you know, to think about. I mean, I think alcohol, you know, I mean, I think we have the U S in general has a very complicated relationship with alcohol, like on a societal level, but alcohol has been attributed to many, many cancers. And it is the easiest thing I think that we can control by drinking less or not drinking or having, you know, a handful of drinks. And, and I want, I always, when we talk about alcohol, I think it's really important to point out that you can drink and not be diagnosed and you cannot drink and be diagnosed. And so risk factors do not imply causality um, in many cases, but you know, that is, if we're thinking about how can we mitigate our risk and how can we reduce the risk of getting diagnosed with cancer, drinking less and eating less processed food and less red meat is something that we can all do to lower risk. It may not mean that someone won't get diagnosed, um, but 
it, it does, you know, there's been a number of cancers that are attributed to alcohol use. And so that's something that we can do. I think every time I talk about this, I get a lot of very angry responses from people, um, which is always interesting to me. That's like the one risk factor that really strikes a nerve in, in many. Yes. I mean, but like you said, you can, you know, drink alcohol and, you know, not get diagnosed. You can drink alcohol and not get diagnosed. So it's just one of those things where, yeah, I don't know the saying, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned. But, you know, alcohol is a proven class one carcinogen. And so it does have direct implications on DNA and our, on our liver and how we metabolize things. And so I think what we don't understand is why in some people, alcohol use or other risk factors lead to a diagnosis and they don't in others, right? And so until we know that, until we have a better sense of understanding that, we can all individually take steps to lower our risk. Right. Absolutely. I think it all has something to do with the gut microbiome. That it sounds like a very interesting area of um, research that they're doing. And I think they're using um, that to look into why colorectal cancer is becoming um, more prominent in people you know, under 45. So, you know, what we're eating, what we're drinking, you know, antibiotic use, that sort of thing. They're all, they're looking into all of that. I'm like, I'm really fascinated by the gut microbiome because I think there's just untapped, undeveloped area of research that, you know, we talk about, I mean, you know, food as medicine, right? And thinking about what we put in our body every single day, multiple times a day makes a difference. And so it's really fascinating. And I'm happy to see that there's more research in this field that we're starting to kind of figure out how the gut microbiome and how that plays a role in what we're, you know, in cancer diagnoses and risks and all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Untapped resources with that, for yeah. sure. And those are hard. I mean, I think too, those are hard studies to do and they take a lot of time. I think very often people say, well, why isn't there research yet, right? Why are there not results? Like, why can I take this gut bacteria as a probiotic and be done? And it's just not the way that it works. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But thank you for bringing up those risk factors. Very important. Uh, anything else that we didn't touch on? No, thanks. So I just, you know, like I said, if they, if you have blood in your stool, it's not normal, whether it's dark blood, whether it's bright red blood. So definitely go get it checked out. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's tip number one. Tip number two is if you're due for colon cancer screening, 45 for average risk earlier for higher risk, make sure you schedule that. Um, and number three, I mean, I, I would come back to saying, listen to your body, right? And advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. I feel like there, since a lot of people are getting diagnosed younger, um, it's definitely important to bring awareness to the physician community as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like I said, I didn't know that early onset colorectal cancer was a thing until I started, you know, doing Instagram searches and Facebook groups. And um, I mean, it's, you know, one of my best cancer friends was diagnosed at 31 and she was diagnosed with stage three as well. Um, So it's definitely something that I, think physicians need to be made aware of as well, because these people are going to be coming in if we're listening to our bodies and saying, you know, something's not right. Mm -hmm. And you're just saying, well, it's probably hemorrhoids or, oh, you just had a baby. So, you know, that's why you have blood in the school. I mean, we definitely need to make sure that the physicians are being educated as well. 
Exactly. And I think what's important here is educating not just primary care or, you know, gynecology, right? Those tend to be kind of the first like point where younger patients go, especially for females gynecology. But I think really educating the entire physician community, because let's say you mentioned it to another doctor, right? And you're told, oh, it's probably hemorrhoids. You may not choose to pursue that avenue further. And so I think educating the broader physician community as a whole is really, really important. Right. I think that I have um, ordered probably a couple dozen colonoscopies from my pulmonary clinic. So, (laughs) um, you know, I'm sure the GI people are like, why is this pulmonologist ordering colonoscopies? But, you know, someone will say something, you know, whether they've been having a little bit of blood in their stool or, you know, some abdominal pain with some weight loss um, or that their family member had colorectal cancer. And so I'm like, I'm just going to order a colonoscopy. So I just do perfectly. And I, and I think the last point I'll make here is that very often I hear, but I had a CAT scan and so I am fine. And mm-hmm. the CAT scan for colon cancer screening requires bowel prep. So it is not the same as having like a, a CAT scan that you would normally have for, let's say, looking for abdominal pain or something. So it's a little bit different. Right. Yes, exactly. So, you know, the best way to look for colorectal cancer is to do a colonoscopy because you get to see all the good stuff inside. Exactly. Lara, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, is there, if people want to connect with you or hear more about you, where can they go? Um, I am mostly active on Instagram. It's Laura L 79. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Laura Lambert, and um, my email address is Laura Lambert 79 at gmail.com. So I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, you know, I'm an open book. So I'd love to talk to people if they have any questions, concerns, or just want to chit chat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening to this episode. I hope that you found it helpful and educational and use this opportunity to make sure that you are up to date with your colorectal cancer screenings. As a reminder, that means age 45 for the average risk person. And there are multiple ways to get screened. As we talked about on this conversation, there are scope-based tests, which is a colonoscopy. There are imaging-based tests, such as a virtual colonoscopy using a CT scan. And there are stool-based tests. And all of them have advantages and disadvantages, but don't use the inability to get a colonoscopy right now as a way not to get colon cancer screening, if that makes sense. If you are not sure of your risk, this is also a good time to gather your family history and to reach out to your healthcare team and have that conversation. Remember that colonoscopies allow us to detect precancerous polyps, to remove precancerous polyps, and to detect early stage colon cancers before they spread. And as everyone says, early detection is the best protection. You can find Dr. Lambert on Instagram at LauraL79. That's L-A-R-A-L-79. And you can find me at Dr. Toplinski on all social media platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, I am always honored if you can take a moment to leave a rating or review or both for the Interlude podcast on Apple Podcasts, as that is the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you soon. Thank you.